0: As we look forward to Easter in two weeks, which is exciting, isn't it? A common question that arises is what happened to Jesus after he died on the cross? We know that on Friday his body was placed in an empty tomb. And on Sunday he rose from the dead. But what happened to Jesus' spirit in the meantime? What happened to Jesus' spirit in the meantime? Some people think Jesus' spirit went to heaven. Some people think Jesus' spirit went to the place of the dead, where he led righteous Old Testament believers to heaven. Some people believe that Jesus descended to hell. That view was famously declared in the Apostles' Creed that says that Jesus was, quote, crucified, dead, and buried. He He descended into hell the third day, he rose from the dead. Those views are pretty different, wouldn't you say? What do you think about that question? Our passage from 1 Peter 3 is often used in these discussions about what happened to Jesus in that time between his death and his resurrection. I believe scripture gives a clear answer to this very fascinating question and prepares us as we get ready for Easter in just two weeks. Sorry, though, no spoiler alert. You got to listen to the whole sermon to see what the Word of God says. And this passage, though, is not just about that question, it gives us a whole lot more. It gives us this breathtaking vision of Jesus. Who he is and what he has done, and will leave us with a sense of all of the greatness of Christ Jesus. So, let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our series on this amazing book. Been going through the last several months. Peter wrote this letter to a group of churches in Asia Minor. Last time we discussed. How Peter addressed the entire church about enduring persecution. If you recall, he he discussed three characteristics for for helping us to endure persecution. He talked about godly living, talked about boldness. He also talked about defending the faith. Now, persecution and suffering, those are not easy, are they, right? These are very challenging things to deal with in the Christian life. And so we need a strong motivation to endure as we sometimes wonder, is it all worth it? Is it all worth it? Well, so to motivate us, Peter turns to the example of Jesus who endured unjust suffering. But that was not the end of the story, was it? Afterward, God exalted Jesus Likewise, if we endure suffering, the Lord will exalt his people just as he exalted Christ. So our passage isn't just a discussion about what happened with Jesus between his death and his resurrection, but really caps, encapsulates, and fulfills this great discussion about enduring suffering and serves as a strong motivation to the church to keep pressing on until God has called us home. Amen? So the first part of our passage is Jesus suffered to bring us to God. Jesus suffered to bring us to God. Let's read verse 18 together. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. So in this very clear, succinct fashion, Peter explains the heart of Christianity. Jesus, he is sinless, perfectly righteous. On the other hand, we are sinful, very unrighteous, okay? And Jesus died to take our place. Did you get that? died to take our place. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when we believe in Christ, we receive his righteousness. Now notice what it says there, that Jesus did this to bring us to God. We have to be brought to God. We do not find the way ourselves. Sometimes you hear it said, all roads lead to God. Ever hear that before? All roads lead to God. Biblically speaking, that is not true. That is not true. Jesus must lead you to God. Jesus has to lead you to God. We don't come to God on any other basis. Just because we might want to come to God, that in and of itself is not a sufficient basis. It's great that you want to come to God, but that's not sufficient in and of itself. Why is that? Because we lack righteousness. We lack righteousness. We might do some good things in this life, but we also do a whole lot of sin, don't we? In our thoughts in our thoughts in our words, in our deeds, in our actions. We have mountains of sin. And our sin, the Bible says, separates us from God. And we need reconciliation from God. We don't get there ourselves. We need someone to bring us to God. We need to be forgiven our sins and given the righteousness of Christ. Theologians call this the glorious exchange. Ever heard of that before? The glorious exchange. What's the glorious exchange? On the side of Christ. He lived a perfect life, yet he died to take our sins. On our side, we live a sinful life, yet we receive the righteousness of Christ. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? We give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. That's why it's called a glorious exchange. We get all the benefit, don't we? I love what Charles Spurgeon, the famous British pastor, said. He said, quote, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. is that a great quote? I want to say it again. You stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. That's the glorious exchange. Let me ask you, has that happened in your life? Has the glorious exchange happened in your life? Has it? Because it's not something automatic. You need to realize it. You need to realize that this is lacking in your life. And you need to realize that you want this and that you take steps for it, that you take action, that you ask God to forgive your sin and believe in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Salvation is not just information, it is transformation. Yes, you need to know a certain amount, but God wants to transform your life. But you have to respond. You have to respond. You can't just listen to it. You have to respond. And Jesus tells us how to respond, that we need to turn from our sin and to believe in him. That is how we are saved. That is how we are brought to God. Not in our own righteousness. All roads do not lead to God. The road that leads to God is the one that Jesus leads us through. That is what he did for us he suffered to bring us to God the second part is Jesus declared his victory to demons Jesus declared his victory to demons let's read verses 19 to 20 says in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Here's where the passage gets a little more challenging. The famous German theologian Martin Luther said about this passage, quote, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage than perhaps any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. (laughs) It's a tough text, and it's kind of, it makes me chuckle because in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. (laughs) Well, Peter, you got a few up your sleeve as well, okay? But, so there's been different interpretations through the centuries, but the majority of scholars today hold the following view, so much so that it's pretty much a consensus as to what the view is. And here's what the view says, and I think they're right. Sometime... After his resurrection, Jesus went to imprison demons and declared his victory over them. Let me just say that again. Sometime after his resurrection, Jesus went to imprison demons and declared his victory over them. So the natural question is, Who were these demons? Look back in your text there. They are fallen angels whom God imprisoned in times past. More than likely, the the incident referred to in Genesis 6 when some of the angels committed sexual morality back in the time of Noah. Notice how it says, they formerly did not obey. And he mentions Noah in this context. Now, pay attention here. I'm going to give you three points that kind of flesh out this view. Everybody listening? All right, so here are three points. First, in the New Testament, the word spirit is used in the plural 36 times, and almost in every case, it's referring to an angelic being, whether good or or bad. In just a few cases, does it refer to human spirits? And when it does, there's a qualifying phrase to let you know that it's speaking of a human spirit. But in every other case, when it's just spirits, it is speaking of angelic spirits, okay? Second thing here, The idea of demons being in prison is found in other New Testament passages. For example, Jude 6 says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.4, Revelation 20, verse 7 are other references that speak about how some demons have been imprisoned in the time being. Notice it doesn't say they're in hell, but somehow they've been imprisoned. Third point, if you look at, third, at 1 Peter 3, verse 22, it too mentions demons. There's various words for angelic beings, angels, authorities, and powers and in context it seems to be speaking of demons because it says these these angelic beings are now submitted subjected to Christ good angels have always been submitted to Christ so it's speaking here of demonic Beings. They're now unwillingly subjected to Christ. So same that Christ pronounced a victory over them. And verse 19 seems to support this. So both verses speak of demons. Both verses speak of Christ declaring victory over them. When did this happen? When did this happen? Well, I don't think that this took place in the time between Jesus' death and his resurrection. I tend to think it was after his resurrection. Look at the text, okay? In verse 18, we read that Christ put to death. He was put to death in the flesh. And then it says he was made alive in the spirit. It could also be translated made alive by the Spirit. And we see, for example, in Romans eight eleven, speaking of the Holy Spirit, how he raised Jesus from the dead. So I think this is talking about his resurrection. So Christ, he was put to death in the flesh, crucifixion. He was raised to life by the Spirit, resurrection. Then he went and proclaimed victory to these imprisoned demons. Now, some of you might still be wondering well, then what happened to Jesus between his death and his resurrection? Scripture never says that he went to hell. On the contrary, the scripture teaches that Jesus' spirit went to heaven, it went to heaven. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is on the cross next to those two criminals, right? And Jesus says to one of the criminals who had put his faith in Christ, he says these words to him. Today you will be with me in paradise. That doesn't sound like going to hell, does it? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And also, he says, he cries out, some of his final words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I think Jesus went to heaven. And there was no need for him to suffer anymore. Remember, he declared on the cross, it is finished. He didn't need to go to hell to suffer anymore because he suffered it all on the cross. Let me just make a quick footnote about the Apostles' Creed, because I know some of us have grown up reciting the Apostles' Creed that mentioned that Jesus descended to hell. This creed, though it's named the Apostles' Creed, it wasn't written by the Apostles, okay? They trace it to about 200 A.D. That's when it came about, long after the Apostles. It's a good, simple summary of the Christian faith, But it is not like the Nicene Creed that I mentioned last week, which was a universal creed, agreed upon by leaders throughout the Roman Empire. But interestingly, the earliest copies of the Apostles' Creed actually do not have that phrase that Jesus descended into hell. It shows up about 390 A.D. in later copies, just so we kind of put a period on that discussion. One final question. Jesus declared his victory to demons. You say, well, how did he defeat them? How did Jesus defeat the demons? By his cross and his resurrection. That is where he defeated them. Colossians 2 14 to 15 says by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this Jesus set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him Jesus disarmed the demons he disarmed them he stripped their power to accuse us before God because he paid for our sin debt hallelujah right? They have no more basis to accuse us because Jesus wipes it all away. And he also says that he triumphed over them, making a public spectacle. Interesting, Paul kind of taps into the language and the culture of his time. Because the Romans, when they would go and they'd conquer people, they'd bring them back into the city of Rome and they would parade their prisoners and they would parade their spoils of victory to show how they were victorious. What Paul's saying here is that, look, Jesus conquered them publicly, showed the world that he had defeated them. There was no more question. He he defeated them on the cross, and then when he rose again, he showed that he was the victor. There was no more doubt. He was victorious. Sin and death are now conquered conquered. Let me ask you a question. Are you living in light of that victory today? Are we living in light of that victory? Jesus conquered death. We don't need to be afraid of it, do we? We don't need to fear man, do we? We don't need to fear things that might come around the corner Jesus conquered that, didn't he? Jesus conquered sin and guilt and shame. Are you living today free? I mean free. Free of your past. Free of things that you've done that you're ashamed of. Jesus wants to set you free. Not just that we come in on Sunday morning and sing about how we've been set free, how we set the captives free, but yet we're still in bondage to the things we've done in the past. And he wants to set us free from the sin that enslaves us here today. He wants us to walk in victory. We need more of this in the Christian life, don't we? I think in bygone eras we sang more about the victorious Christian life in songs like Victory in Jesus and now the pendulum has swung so far to the fact that we just want to be authentic and we, we know we have so far to go. And that is true. We have to admit that as well. We're not Christ. But he didn't give us the victory for us to live weak, defeated lives all the time. He wants us to be in victory and to give him all of the praise for it. We've seen two parts. Jesus suffered to bring us to God, and he declared his victory over demons. The third part is Jesus rules over all demonic powers. He rules over all demonic powers. In verses 21 to 22, Peter says, "...baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience." Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now go back up to verse 19. You remember there how Peter was talking about the waters of Noah. Now he draws a little dotted line down to verse 20. and He talks briefly here about baptism. And he says that baptism corresponds to the waters of Noah. Peter, what do you mean with this? Okay. (laughs) Well, I think what he's saying is that we are like Noah and that we're a small persecuted minority in a world filled with unrighteousness. Amen. And I think he also means that Noah and his family were saved through the floodwaters. Perhaps he's talking about how when the floodwaters finally receded, they safely deposited the ark on the on the ground there. And so, too, baptism saves us. Notice, though. Peter clarifies that the washing of water does not save you. It just removes physical dirt, right? The mere physical act of baptism does not save anybody. Unfortunately, sometimes people look at that and they look at the outward act and Depend upon that when there's been no heart change. But there has to be a heart change, doesn't there? There has to be something that is taking place here. Notice what Peter says, that our salvation comes as an appeal to God for a good conscience. We appeal to God to forgive us of our sins. The Christian Standard Bible translates it this way. It says, It translates as a pledge of a good conscience toward God, meaning that at our baptism we pledge to live in a way that pleases God. Not that that saves us, but we're declaring our faith and our testimony in Christ. In verse 22, Peter adds that we appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, we are saved based on what Jesus has done for us. But when baptism is done as a symbol of trusting Christ it is an important part of the Christian life. It's our declaration of our faith in Christ. And yes, if that has never happened in your life, let me encourage you today to heed the command of God to be baptized, not to be saved, but to give an outward declaration of this great Jesus. And the victory that he has brought into your life that you want to declare to the whole world that you are now a disciple of Christ. Don't delay. Let today be that day when you say, yes, I want to get into that baptism pool. And I want to tell the world about the victory that Jesus has done in my life. I am not ashamed of the gospel because of what Jesus has done for me finally peter brings that whole discussion full circle he says in verse 22 through the resurrection of jesus christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of god with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him wow after jesus rose again the book of acts tells us that he stuck around for 40 days and kept doing bible lessons with the apostles and the church teaching them about the kingdom of God. But then afterward, where did he go? He ascended to heaven in his now glorified humanity. And where does he sit? He sits at the right hand of God. The New Testament often speaks about that, about how Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the place of honor, the place of authority, as the place where he is reigning as the resurrected Messiah over all of creation, all of creation, including the demonic realm. Jesus rules over it all. We saw earlier that he declared his victory over the demons. Now we see that he rules over them. Ephesians 1, 20-22 declares the exaltation of Christ in similar language. It says that God, quote, raised him from the dead and seated him at at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus ascended to heaven and now reigns. He was put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit, ascended to heaven, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and along the way, declared to those demons, I am victorious. What do we take away from this passage? Let me just give you two things to consider this morning. And I hope that you will consider them well. First, we should stand in awe of Christ. We should stand in awe of Christ. He's simply amazing. He's just simply amazing. He's amazing in his great power. He rose again. He defeated death. He declared victory over demons. He's reigning at the right hand of God in full glory and full power. And that great power is also matched by his great love, church. Because he was willing to leave that glory and to come to this world and to live as a human being and to live that perfect life that none of us live and to die on the cross to take our place, that glorious exchange. He was willing to do it all for our salvation. Because there is no other way to be brought to God. We should stand in awe of Jesus Christ. Absolute awe. Whether you've been a Christian for six months, six years, or 60 years, we should never lose that awe of who Jesus Christ is. Second, we should persevere in our sufferings. That's why Peter goes here. That's why he goes to the example of Christ. It's a motivation for us. Sometimes when we struggle, as I said earlier, we can ask ourselves, if we're honest, sometimes in those dark valley valleys that we have, is this all worth it? Is it worth it to go through the persecution? Isn't it easier just to, you know what, say, I'm going to go with the world. It's a lot easier that way. I hope this passage will speak to our hearts this morning. Jesus suffered unjustly and afterward God exalted him. And God will do the same for us. Suffering unjustly is not the final word. Indeed, suffering is the path to glory. It was the path for Christ and it is the path now since we belong to him. Romans 8.18 declares, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Church, it is worth it. It is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. Every amount of suffering, every amount of persecution that you go to through God will exalt you. When he returns, you will not regret it. It is all worth it. Look to Christ. Look to his example. The suffering that he blazed in that trail. He also followed through by having it be a path of glory. We will join him. Let us stay faithful. Let us stay faithful. Are you going to be faithful, church? Are you going to follow him to the end? Are you going to persevere and follow this great Savior who has set the example, blazed the trail, and is there waiting for his saints when they arrive? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you for who you are and for what you have done. We thank you that your suffering brings us to you, brings us to God. Lord, we chase out that false truth that all roads lead to you. When you yourself have said, you are the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through you. Lord, we praise you. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your rule over demonic powers. We pray for that this morning in our own lives, that we would embrace that reality. That you stand victorious and you want your people to live that way. Yes, we stumble and fall. But the Bible says that when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And Lord, we ask you to help us persevere in our sufferings and to follow your lead. Lord, for some of us here today, that might be following you and to the baptism pool, to declare our faith to you and our faith to the world. Not that it saves us, but that we are unashamed of who you are. And Lord, for someone here today who's never trusted you, never understood the glorious exchange that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Lord, I pray that you, by your spirit, as you say in John 16, you will send the Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. May you open someone's eyes today to bring them to the truth, bring them to the end of their selves and their striving for their own righteousness, to see that they need a Savior, that today they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for you, you are, and we truly Stand in awe and praise you forever. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.